Scratch and Sniff with Nick Randall on RTE Pulse. Sponsored by Gay Community News, GCN.ie. Your essential guide to gay Ireland. The British campaigner Peter Tatchell was among the gay rights group. First of all, he had water thrown at him. Then he was punched in the face. It felt like living through a low-level civil war. I actually felt that sooner or later I might even be killed. Papers like The Sun, who'd been outing people left, right and centre for years and doing so for entirely homophobic reasons, they denounced us because we'd sort of taken away their game. great respect and gratitude to the people who stuck by me through those long dark periods. Today is Peter Tatchell's 60th birthday and to celebrate Scratch and Sniff have been privileged enough to be invited to Peter's home in Southwark to talk about his dedicated and sometimes controversial international human rights campaigning, whether it be tackling anti-Semitism, homophobia or attacks on the Muslim community. In all his years of campaigning, how far does Peter feel we've moved forward? You're listening to a Scratch and Sniff special on RTE Pulse. This is the Peter Tatchell story. When was your consciousness first alerted to injustices in the world and how did that alarm and inspire you to fight back? There were two things in my childhood. One, when I was about 11... Uh, there was a big news story back in Melbourne, Australia, about a bombing by the Ku Klux Klan of a black church in, I think it was Birmingham, Alabama, where three young girls about my own age were killed. Mm. And I was so shocked and incensed that anybody could do this to another human being. Mm. So that really made me aware of racism yeah. and social injustice and the fact that you know black people were being persecuted simply because of their race. Then a few years later, um, in 1967, in the state of Victoria where I lived, they still had the death penalty and a prisoner was due to be executed for allegedly shooting dead a prison warder during an escape. But I worked out at the age of 15 that he could have not fired the fatal bullet. The trajectory of the bullet through the warder's body meant it was virtually impossible for him to have killed that warder. But he was hanged anyway. And that just really destroyed my faith and confidence in the government, the police, the judiciary. And from that moment onwards, I became a lifelong sceptic of authority. Well, I mean, that's, that's uh, quite a start then. I mean, how was life growing up in Australia? Were there as many issues there that there are here? Well, of course, when I was growing up in Australia in the 1960s, in my hometown of Melbourne... There were no gay organisations, no helplines, 
no counselling services, nothing. But we didn't exist then, I think. Or was that Queen Victoria? I'm getting mixed up. <laughs> oh, we definitely existed. We definitely existed. But life was quite tough. I mean, there was a flourishing, you know, gay subculture, but there was no support. And, you know, gay people could be arrested, jailed and forced to undergo uh, compulsory psychiatric treatment. That's how bad it was. And, you know, the police were some of the biggest gay bashers. The police in Melbourne, some police, not all police, would go to the local cruising areas and beat up gay people and get away with it. And so when I realised I was gay in 1969, at the age of 17, um, I wanted to do something about it. I asked some of my friends. I suggested we set up a gay rights organisation. And they all looked at me like I was completely bonkers, which perhaps I was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they said, you're going to get us arrested. What do you know? You're only 17. Go away. Um, and these were I'm... other gay men, yeah? Absolutely. So what I did in those first 30 years was simply just write letters to newspapers uh, and other public officials uh, to challenge homophobia. At first, I was too frightened to sign my name or address because I was afraid the letters might be turned over to the police and I'd be arrested. Uh, eventually, I did get up the courage to sign my name and eventually even sign my address. Good for you. But um, it wasn't until I came to London in 1971 uh, and joined the Gay Liberation Front, which had been newly established, that I began to start working with other gay people to actually fight for our rights. So let's talk about the early 70s then. You came to London, you started uh, getting involved. What was the first time you had a bit of a brush with the law about it? Well, of course, um, the Gay Liberation Front was a very radical organisation. Uh, I don't think the word equality ever passed our lips. We were champions of liberation, mm. of gay liberation, black liberation, Irish liberation, women's liberation, colonial liberation. You know, we were part of a bigger, broader movement to change society. We weren't interested in fitting in or assimilating or getting crumbs from the table. We want to change the whole of society mm. to end what we now call homophobia, misogyny, racism and so on. Mm. Um, it was a very, very exciting time. But of course, because of our radicalism, we were under police surveillance. We were often, you know, our protests were very heavily and aggressively policed. Lots of people were arrested in those early days when we did sit-ins in pubs. I remember in late 1971, um, a group of us from the Gay Liberation Front went to a pub, the Chepstow, in Notting Hill Gate, which refused to serve puffs and dykes, and we demanded to be served. And when they refused, we sat down and occupied the pub. Um, the owners, the landlord, called the police, and dozens of police arrived, including the heavy squad from the from the, the really heavy squad. Um, and we were dragged out. Uh, some of us were strip searched. I remember a sergeant uh, took me out into the alleyway uh, and made me drop my trousers. I was only 
19, felt, did a very intimate body search uh, all over, and then finally reached inside my underpants and squeezed my testicles as hard as he could, leaving me in excruciating pain. Oh. Rather sick, rather sick. But anyway, I wasn't actually arrested. You know, I wasn't, well, I, I was sort of detained, but not arrested. Mm. Um, but as a result of that protest and the follow-up ones we did, that pub and all the other pubs in the area who'd refused to serve LGBT people dropped their ban and they agreed to serve us. So it shows that direct action does work and it did actually help break down the discrimination that uh, LGBT people were facing. Because you have proved that on so many occasions that um, direct action, which some people and a lot of gay people that I've spoken to over the years, or some rather, uh, have said, oh, well, you know, he's causing him this and rumpus and all the rest of it. But they, you, you presumably stand by all the actions that, that you've done. Have there been any regrets at all? The only regrets I have is that I didn't do more and that I wasn't more feisty. Um, I think in terms of challenging the homophobia that the LGBT community faced, our methods were actually very moderate and reasonable. By comparison to the suffragettes, who did engage in violence and actually burned down churches in protest at the, churches, uh, the Church of England's opposition to women's votes, um, we never did any of those things. You know, we were moderate by comparison. Um, we were just simply asking for respect, dignity and human rights. Uh, we never engaged in actions of violence or criminal damage. It was peaceful in the tradition of Gandhi and Martin Luther King, uh, non-violent direct action. I think that uh, you know, we should have done more. The British police are the best in the world. I don't believe one of these stories I've heard about them raiding our pubs for no reason at all. I think if you look at every great movement for social freedom and justice, there comes a point when they always had to resort to direct action because their issues and concerns were ignored and blocked. Just think of the Chartists or the Suffragettes or the Black Civil Rights Movement in the United States. You know, they tried to work through the system, they were rebuffed, and that's why they took to the streets and protested. And those protests, those visible, high-profile protests, did put their issues in the news, did generate public debate, and did force the authorities to address their concerns. Was your faith tested during the dark days, shall we say? I always had the vision, right from those early days in the late 1960s, that we could, like the battles for colonial freedom or against slavery, eventually win LGBT freedom. Mm. I thought that in Britain it would probably take 50 years 
to end legal inequality. In fact, I was slightly pessimistic because actually, within 40 years, we got rid of all legal discrimination, bar the ban on same-sex marriage, and of course, the onerous restrictions on gay and bisexual blood donors. Mm. So all the other laws, the many other laws, were actually repealed about a decade ahead of my expectation. Now, I remember a lot of people saying, 50 years? You're going to keep at this for 50 years? You're crazy! I said, well, just think of all the years it took for women to win the vote or for black people to win their freedom in countries around the world, for an end to slavery and all the other iniquities that have existed throughout history. Mm. It does take courage, yeah. determination, patience and perseverance. Absolutely. What is it that you're after in the gay movement? Well, is it, is it your feeling that... Uh, the gay people should be recognized uh, as far as the fact that they are gay and that they're human beings and have a right to. Yes, definitely. Do you feel that, uh, that all the gay people as a majority rather than just a minority are normal people of everyday caliber? Just because they like one thing doesn't mean they're different from other people. I mean, everybody's different in one way, but just because they're gay doesn't mean that uh, they aren't everyday people. Okay, thank you. Did you sometimes get frustrated with your friends, colleagues, did, did some of them drop at the wayside and, and did that affect you personally? I don't blame others who haven't done as much as me or have worked in different ways. To me, all different methods for social change are valid. Some people may only write a letter to the MP. They may only join a sedate protest from Hyde Park to Trafalgar Square. That's fine they are doing something, and something is better than nothing. Uh, I've never said that my method is the best method or the only method. It's one method, one necessary method, but there are others as well. Mm. And I pay tribute to everyone, LGBT and straight, who has walked with us on this long journey to freedom. When was your first Pride March? Was it in this country? The first Pride March I ever went on was in 1972 in London. It was a groovy course, man. <laughs> it was, of course, the first Pride March in Britain, and with about 30 other people, I helped organise it. Uh, my role was fairly modest, but you know, like everybody else, I chipped in, and uh, I can remember people being really, really uncertain about how many people would actually turn out for a gay pride march in 1972. In the end, about 700 to 1,000 people turned out. Which is fantastic for the first one. I mean, that is, I mean, you, you, presumably you were happy with that. Oh, yeah, I, I was over... I, some people were disappointed. I was overjoyed. I thought, 700, that's fantastic for a first time. And this is an atmosphere and a period when homophobia was rife. And when the police were really, really aggressive, not all the time, but many times, against gay protests and demonstrations. So it took quite a lot of guts for people to turn out. But I've got to tell you that the responses from the public were very interesting. About a third of the people watching the parade on the streets were hostile. They shouted bigoted homophobic slogans. They threw beer cans and coins. Um, in some cases, we thought we were going to be attacked, and indeed, some people did try and attack us. Mm. But about another third were just plain 
curious. They were sort of gawping in amazement and wonderment <laughs> that all these gay people would dare show their faces, but they weren't hostile. And the other third were actually quite supportive. Which is fantastic. I mean, they got a third already, and that's only 72. Absolutely, absolutely. But again, the police treated us like the criminals we were. You know, there was one police officer to every protester. We were hemmed in and phalanxed on every side by police. It was as if we were advocating terrorist bombing or child molestation or something, you know. The way we were treated by the police was absolutely shocking. But we were undeterred. Mm. We were undeterred, we were determined to make our point, and we did. And sit back and watch as they close down our clubs. Arrest us for meeting, raid all our pups. Make sure your boyfriend's at least 21. So only your friends and your brothers get done. Lie to your workmates, lie to your folks. Put down the Queen's Hotel, anti-queer jokes. Buggers are legal now. What more are they after? Sing if you're glad to be gay. Well, we can also speak now to the gay rights uh, campaigner Peter Tatchell, who's here in the studio with us. Um, Peter Tatchell, what evidence have you got for thinking that he would be executed if he is uh, sent back? Well, I was one of about 30 people who founded Outrage in May 1990. And the impetus was the murder, the kicking to death, of Michael Booth in West London. He was the latest in a whole series of homophobic murders and assaults that the police were not taking seriously. And of course, at the same time, the police were taking very seriously consenting sex between men uh, in parks and public toilets in the middle of the night. They were organising raids left, right and centre uh, to arrest people who no member of the public had complained about, and who the police would have never known about had they not been there with undercover officers mm -hmm. seeking to find them and, and trap them. Um, so it was this rallying cry of protection, not persecution, mm -hmm. was the founding mantra of outrage. Mm -hmm. The challenge to police harassment and victimisation of our community was the core initial uh, action uh, and campaign of outrage. Um, within three years, we succeeded in changing policing policy. Um, how we did it was not by tea at New Scotland Yard, although that's how it began. We demanded to meet with senior Metropolitan Police officers to discuss the homophobic policing of our community. They eventually reluctantly agreed, but very soon we discovered it was just a talking shop. Mm -hmm. After months, it was just chat, 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 beer and sandwiches, and then they do off and order another raid. So we decided we're not going to be part of the PR exercise, the Metropolitan Police. We're walking out. And we began a very high-profile series of direct action protests, invading and occupying the police stations that were organising entrapment operations, uh, interrupting the press conferences of the then Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Sir Paul Condon, um, challenging and photographing the undercover officers and putting their pictures on trees and pub in public toilets. Um, I can tell you, within about three months of that campaign, the police were pleading with us to come back to the negotiating table. Oh, that is so empowering. I'm loving it. And, and when we went back, 
we didn't go back just in protest mode. We presented them with concrete, practical ways they could shift from a policy of persecution to protection. So a reform program modelled on the good practice of police forces in the Netherlands, Denmark, and so on. And, of course, the police didn't have an answer. They thought when we came back we'd just be rah, rah, rah. But when we presented them with concrete, specific, achievable goals, they were really stumped. It's really not- stumped. And it was interesting. One of our demands was for the appointment of a lesbian and gay community liaison officer. To Fox us, they appointed a religious fundamentalist, John Brown, Inspector John Brown. I think quite deliberately to try and prevent progress. But I can tell you, our attitude to John Brown was to appeal to his conscience. We sat down and we talked with him. We treated him with respect. And very soon he completely changed. And he became our strongest ally. That's wonderful. And so it does show, it's a great story of redemption, you know. And I, I pay full tribute to John Brown all these years later for his role in helping transform the Metropolitan Police, and through that, transform other police forces around the country. shot was, of course, that the number of gay and bisexual men convicted for consenting same-sex behaviour between 1990 and 1993 fell by two-thirds, the biggest, fastest fall ever recorded. We literally saved thousands of gay and bisexual men from arrest, criminal convictions and all the knock-on effects for their careers, their marriages and so on. So it really does show that direct action can get results where inside lobbying had actually failed. You're listening to a Scratch and Sniff special on RTE Pulse with my special guest, Peter Tatchell. I've been working with the Jamaican gay and lesbian human rights groups and with their straight friends and allies. And it's true that the situation there is very, very dire. There's a very big problem about homophobic violence. Um, I was going to ask about uh, gay rights around the world because obviously we've achieved so much now and in no small way due to people like yourself. What's next on the agenda? What what are you working on? I mean, I know you do human rights generally, but in terms of the uh, gay voice around the world in countries where that voice is stifled, are you involved in work there as well? We're making progress, but it's often painfully slow. Still, there is no international human rights convention anywhere that specifically and explicitly guarantees equal rights and non-discrimination to LGBT people. Not even the European Convention. You know, the way we've won cases in the European Court of Human Rights has been by appealing to the clause about non-discrimination on the grounds of other status. We are other status. Um, obviously, that's a victory. But, you know, there is no international convention still that explicitly recognises 
that sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination is wrong and illegal. There are still more than 70 countries that still criminalise same-sex relations in all circumstances. In some of these countries, the penalties are just a few years' imprisonment, but in places like Malaysia, it's 20 years' jail plus flogging. And then there are several countries, all Commonwealth countries, that have life imprisonment for homosexuality. And, of course, there are several Islamist states that retain the death penalty, countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, Yemen, and so on. So quite clearly, on the legal front, we have a long, long way to go at the global level. But there is progress. You know, we have had uh, declarations, uh, a statement by the United Nations General Assembly three years ago, uh, which endorsed LGBT human rights and condemned discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, we've had a quite recent, a much more recent, um, commitment by the United Nations Human Rights Council to support LGBT human rights. And of course, even way back in 1994, the United Nations Human Rights Committee ruled that homosexuality should be lawful and that banning it was contrary to international human rights law. That was the famous Tunan case, Tunan versus the state of Tasmania in Australia. So there are precedents and there are moves through international bodies to secure greater rights for LGBT people. And we're seeing some amazing things. You know, in a country like Nepal, which was uh, a monarchical dictatorship until recently, we now have an openly gay and communist member of parliament. Um, we have um, big moves to end homophobic and transphobic discrimination. Uh, the situation is far from perfect, but, you know, they're actually talking in Nepal about legalising same-sex marriage. You know, that's amazing, extraordinary. Uh, and all, this kind of development is being replicated all over the world. And I'd say that in virtually every country now, whether above ground or underground, there are LGBTI activists and movements. You know, that's a huge progress from... 10, 20, or 30 years ago. Do you think the internet is helping with that, of course? There's no doubt that the World Wide Web is interconnecting and bringing together uh, LGBT activists all over the globe. You know, people in, in China, Ghana, or Honduras can read about the struggles for LGBT rights, can hear about the campaigns that others are doing, and can adapt and innovate them for their own particular countries. You know, that's a great, great asset. And of course, more and more uh, Western organizations are beginning to fund LGBT groups to empower them to fight their own battles. So we see an organization like Sexual Minorities Uganda getting funding from Western countries to help their campaign against the current anti-homosexuality bill, which proposes the death penalty for repeat homosexual offenders. It's really, really important that that organisation has those resources because they're up against a government that's very well resourced and is very, some of whose MPs are very, very determined to legislate executions for lesbian and gay people. 24 hours a day. RTE Pulse.
We're very concerned that these human rights defenders have been arrested following their very high-profile public defense of two men who have been arrested and charged for undergoing a same-sex engagement ceremony, which is perfectly lawful, which is not a criminal offense. But for defending these two men who are now currently in a prison in Malawi, the human rights defenders themselves are being harassed. And they too have been arrested. So we'll talk a little bit about your travels now, because obviously this has involved presumably a lot of movement around the places, being in certain places at certain times, the Vatican. What were some of your highlights and lowlights? And let's talk about Robert Mugabe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, the two attempted citizen's arrests, um, one was in London in 1999 when we ambushed his motorcade, and the other one was in Brussels in 2001 when I tried to arrest him in the lobby of the Hilton Hotel and ended up being beaten and knocked unconscious by his henchmen. Um, not a very pleasant experience, mm. but it was very effective in helping expose his regime. Up until that time, there was very little awareness about the brutality of Mugabe's Zimbabwe. Um, but I think a lot of people concluded, well, if he's prepared to have his bodyguards beat up a peaceful protester in the centre of a European capital city in broad daylight in front of TV cameras just imagine what he's doing to his own people when no one's watching so I never wanted or sought to get those injuries but hey it was very effective in exposing the regime and the length it's prepared to go to um, so that was sort of a highlight it's, it's, of course it's, it's left me with some brain and eye injuries but um, you know I carry on I survive you know and, and by comparison to the heroic human rights advocates and campaigners in Zimbabwe I've got off lightly many of them have been killed tortured beaten jailed you name it uh, so you know I walk in their shadow This is what happens to gay rights campaigners in Moscow. They'd gathered to call for a gay pride march in the city, something the mayor of Moscow has described as satanic. They were confronted by a group of orthodox Christians and right-wing nationalists. The chant means Russia without homosexuals. The British campaigner Peter Tatchell was among the gay rights group. First of all, he had water thrown at him. Then he was punched in the face. (laughs) Yet he was the one then led away by the police. You had a close call in Russia. Are you comfortable talking about that? I've been to Russia to support the Moscow Gay Pride Parade uh, since 2006. But it was in... 2007 that I was uh, set upon and beaten by neo-Nazis. I wasn't actually knocked unconscious, but I was pretty badly stunned and I was reeling and got a huge big black eye and that compounded the eye injuries from the Mugabe incident Mm. in 2001. So this right eye, which had perfect vision, is now I can just about make out who you are. But it's fortunately that the left eye more or less compensates, but it's it's not, 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 not good. Not well, good. You must keep your tin hat on, mate, next time you go. <laughs> Seriously, because we worry about you. You are, you are the people's champion here. Well, but... you know, we've got to keep our eyes fixed on the Russian activists, the mm. huge, tremendous courage they show. Mm. I went there for a week or a few days. They're there 365 days a year. 
that takes real, real courage. And, you know, they are risking not just beating and false arrest and fabricated charges, but actually being killed. Human rights advocates in Russia, if they get too uppity, end up with a bullet in the back of their head or an iron bar, which kills them. I went there to support the Russian activists, to stand in solidarity with their struggle, which is so brave, so inspiring. After the fracas, riot police stepped in to arrest some of the activists, but they stuck to their guns. I'm just doing what I feel I have to do, this woman says. Where is the He always apologises for the failings of others in the church, but never for his own failings. One of your more extreme forms of action, which, from the way you're telling us and everything, you you, you try the soft approach first, but it was uh, it was a case of outing certain people or, or putting certain names out there who were perhaps being homophobic. In retrospect, how do you look at that time? Well, this was a period in the early 1990s when um, senior people in government and parliament, the church, the media, were rabidly homophobic. You know, they were saying that gay people did not deserve human rights, that we must suffer the indignity of discrimination. We are not fit to have equal rights, they said. And they supported, you know, the arrest and conviction and jailing of gay and bisexual men for behaviour that wasn't even an offence between heterosexual men and women. You know, they were adamant that there should never be any legal recognition of same-sex relationships, that um, lesbian and gay couples were utterly unfit to care for children, and that lesbian mothers should have their children taken away from them by the courts. This was the atmosphere we were operating in. And I've got to tell you that we did try to negotiate. We did appeal to their conscience. We did meet these uh, public figures and and leaders of government and got nowhere. And when we realised that quite a lot of them were themselves gay, lesbian or bisexual, Mm. we became absolutely outraged that they were, despite their own sexuality, persecuting other gay people. So we decided, we gave them fair notice, we said, if you continue to support discriminatory laws an attack in public the gay community, we will out you. Now, their response was, ha ha, let them try. They were so arrogant and superior, they thought we wouldn't dare. But what we did was, very carefully, start collating information from people who knew these public figures. This wasn't tittle-tattle or gossip. This was from people who knew these public figures who'd been to gay parties with them, in some cases had previously had relationships with them, we gathered this great, great dossier. And we decided to, first of all, go for the Church of England. Because at the time, the Church of England's official policy was to oppose gay equality. It wasn't just to condemn homosexuality from a biblical point of view. It was to say that gay people are not entitled to equal legal rights, that the law should discriminate. And Church of England bishops in the House of Lords were speaking and voting in favour of discrimination. So we called their bluff on the opening day of the Synod of the Church of England 
1994 in London, we named 10 Anglican bishops and called on them to tell the truth. All we were asking was for them to practice what they preached. They said, you know, you should be honest. It's a, honesty is a Christian value. Why weren't they being honest about their sexuality? Moreover, why were they being hypocrites in that they themselves were gay or bisexual, yet they were condemning other gay people, supporting the church's anti-gay stance, and even saying the law should discriminate? It was this hypocrisy, this double standards, the fact they were preaching one thing in public and doing something different in private. That's what was the reason for our action. And it's very interesting that only one of those ten bishops ever denied it. And he was the one on which we had the most evidence and whose own personal moral behaviour was the most reprehensible from any standpoint, religious or otherwise. The effect of that naming was phenomenal. Of course, we were denounced. I was personally denounced as a homosexual terrorist, a gay fascist, and so on. I'm one of only about four living people in Britain who has been convicted under a religious-inspired law, the Ecclesiastical Courts Jurisdiction Act of 1860, formerly part of the Brawling Act, of 1552. Under this law, any kind of protest in a church or place of worship is illegal, no matter how peaceful, no matter how brief. And on Easter Sunday in 1998, myself and six other members of the LGBT human rights group Outrage went into Canterbury Cathedral and walked into the pulpit as the Archbishop of Canterbury delivered his Easter sermon. We did that in order to protest against the church's homophobia and its particular support for laws that discriminated at the time against a gay people. The unequal age of consent, employment discrimination, the lack of legal recognition for same-sex partnerships. All these laws, these discriminations, were endorsed by the Archbishop of Canterbury and by the Anglican Church. And for making that protest, uh, we were arrested. In the end, I was the only person charged, but I was convicted under the 1860 Ecclesiastical Courts Jurisdiction Act, and I can tell you I am mighty proud of that conviction. But the effect was to provoke a huge public debate about hypocrisy in the Church of England, about the double standards. It provoked debates in parishes all over the country about what attitude the Church should have towards gay people and gay human rights. It resulted a one month later in the House of Bishops scheduling a previously unscheduled debate on gay rights and producing what is to this day one of the strongest statements against homophobia ever produced by the Church of England. Now, they would not have done that if we hadn't named and shamed those bishops. Yeah. Now, of course, that action did not solve everything. Far from it. But it did begin, for the first time, a serious debate. And as well, it led to the bishops appointing one of their members to liaise with the lesbian and gay Christian movement to begin a serious dialogue, which they'd always previously refused to do. 
So it opened up for the lesbian gay Christian movement a dialogue with the church leadership, which they'd not previously had. So in every respect, although personally it was very tough for me because of the hatred and vilification I got in the press and from some members of the public, it was a very productive uh, tactic. Did you find the flack you got from papers and stuff just very exhausting? Did you feel that people were just being too lazy to really understand properly the processes you had gone through? Well, I think it's partly because the media did not report the truth. Mm. Um, quite ironically, papers like The Sun, who'd been outing people left, right and centre for years and doing so for entirely homophobic reasons, not for any exposure of hypocrisy, they denounced us because we'd sort of taken away their game. You know, we'd sport their little game, their party. Um, and that was, quite, that was quite interesting, amusing, shocking. Um, but even liberal papers like The Guardian never really reported the truth. That they, they, they tried to portray it as though we were outing these poor, innocent, harmless old vicars which was complete nonsense. You know, by and large, they ignored the element of hypocrisy. But through our own means, we did get through to a lot of people in the church and the wider society. And over time, more and more people realized that what we were targeting was homophobia and hypocrisy. It wasn't the fact that these bishops were closeted and didn't want to reveal their sexuality. It was because they were preaching homophobic teachings or, or endorsing the church and its homophobic stance, that's what it was all about. you apologise to the British people for your party's long history of anti-Semitism, okay. homophobia and attacks on the Muslim community. This is the BNP in action. Look at them. Look at them. Get up. Why don't you apologise for your anti-Semitism, homophobia and attacks on the Muslim community? The British people are owed an apology, Nick. Why don't you apologise, you gutless coward? You attack the vulnerable and you won't even face an accuser. That's what Nick Griffin and the BNP stand for. It's a party of hatred and a party that will not tolerate anybody who questions that hatred. You saw Nick Griffin. I asked him a question. He ran away. He's a gutless coward. Peter taking on the BNP leader Nick Griffin and winning in the first round. Well, despite all his incredible campaigning, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that it's Peter's birthday today. 21 again and looking good. The best SNS could offer in the way of a present was a track or two of his choice, summing up his life ethos or simply because it makes his feet tap. Over to Peter. One of my favourite tracks of 2011 has been Tiny Temper's Invincible. Great music, great lyrics. In fact, 
great love poetry. There's a section there which is just like incredibly wonderful. Um, the kind of thing you'd want to say to a person you really truly love. And it's also a great anthem about overcoming adversity. So it sort of sums up and encapsulates a bit of me. Scratch and Sniff with Nick Randall on RTE Pulse. Sponsored by Gay Community News, GCN.ie. Your essential guide to gay Ireland. You're listening to a Scratch and Sniff special on RTE Pulse featuring international human rights campaigner Peter Tatchell. 
And for all of you who are listening in for the very first time, do be aware that Scratch and Sniff is on every week as part of Gay Wednesdays on RTE Pulse, featuring interviews with people active in the LBGT community, as well as script writers, stand-up comedians, dance music producers, authors, and music from unsigned or recently signed artists. With TV, film, and theatre reviews too, we're well and truly worth checking out. And to contact SNS, our email address is sns at rte.ie. That's sns at rte.ie. You can find us on Facebook too by searching for Scratch and Sniff on RTE Pulse, plus Twitter is Scratch and Tweet. Right, back to Peter now for part two of his birthday prezzy. I'd say Diana Ross at the Budapest concert in 1996, where she sings a medley of One Day We'll All Be Free and We Shall Overcome. Two songs that encapsulate the ethos and values that I stand for. Love you. Thank you.
There, requested especially by Peter Tatchell. Well, on the 29th of September 2010, Peter was honoured with a special plaque directly outside his home in Southwark for his work on international human rights. Simon Hughes, Ian McKellen and many more were there to cheer him on. Campaigner Peter Tatchell is honoured with a blue plaque on the wall of his London home. The people of Southwark voted for him to receive the council honour in recognition of the decades he has campaigned for gay and human rights. I'm very gratified but a little bit embarrassed because normally you don't get blue plaque until you're dead. As you can see I'm very much alive. The people of Southwark voted to give me this blue plaque in recognition of my 40 plus years of campaigning for human rights, gay freedom and global justice. Um, I'm, of course, just one of many millions of people who are campaigning for a better world. Uh, and together, it's our collective efforts that are making the world a better place. The plaque was unveiled by actor Sir Ian McKellen. He doesn't want a revolution in the world. He just wants to simply bring the world back to values that we all understand. Values of freedom, freedom from torture, freedom from discrimination, freedom from imprisonment. Uh, on for, for, your, for your views. Everyone can agree with that and uh, it's Peter who's just uh, canny enough and clever enough and dedicated enough to bring it to the attention of people who can do something about it. And uh, he's been a crucial part in uh, the advancements of gay people in this country and uh, as one of them I'm very grateful to him. Tatchell has campaigned for human rights across the globe. He co-founded Outrage in 1990 and has twice attempted a citizen's arrest of Zimbabwe's President Mugabe. When you made your decision to leave Australia and come here, uh, we hope looking back you feel you made the right decision. Uh, we are very grateful you made the decision to settle in Southwark. You have helped us have a reputation as one of the most enlightened, diverse uh, and gay-friendly parts of Britain and we hope that we will continue to honour your work. Today we bless and celebrate you first and foremost. Your work of justice that transcends all religions and none. Transcends class, color, race, gender and sexual orientation. For you, Peter Thatchell, more than anyone we know, epitomize the God we believe in. Your humanity. I was saying to some people about a month ago, I said, give it a certain amount of time, like 30 years or something. I'm absolutely convinced there will be a statue of you in Hyde Park or something like that. You will be up there because that's how I feel about you anyway. And I'm sure a lot of other people, too. It's been wonderful um, speaking to you tonight. Peter Tatchell, thank you so much. Thank you. It's my great honour. And uh, leave out the statue, but just get rid of injustice. That's the best memorial for anyone. The British police are the best in the world.
We came into this world better than the world our forebears inherited. It's because the people who went before us struggled and fought that we live in a world that's better than it was a century or two centuries ago. I think we have a duty to, for the sake of future generations, leave this world better than when we came into it. And if we all do something, no matter how big or small, Collectively and cumulatively, we can change the world. We can make it a better place. We can create a world where there is more justice, more equality, more peace, more freedom. Uh, my simple mantra is never accept the world as it is. Dream of what the world could be and then help make it happen. Good times for a change See the luck I've had Can make a good man turn bad So please, please, please Let me, let me, let me Let me get what I want this time Haven't had a dream in a long time See the life I've had can make a good man bad So for once in my life let me get what I want Lord knows it would be the first time Lord knows it would be the first time Four hours a day. RTE Pulse. 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 Pulse.